Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hi everyone, and welcome to Confessions of a Debut Novelist with me, your host, Chloe Timms. If I sound a bit croaky, that's because I'm just recovering from a cold. This week, I'm talking to Kate Sawyer about her post-apocalyptic debut, The Stranding, which has just been published in paperback. Kate was born in Suffolk and grew up in the countryside as the eldest of four siblings. She's an actor and a founding member of the Faction Theatre Company and has established the Curious Room Theatre Company herself. In this episode, We discuss writing a sensory experience to make the surreal plausible, varying your writing routine and being your own biggest champion. But first, here's Kate with an excerpt from The Stranding. Among the masses of driftwood, the creature lies sprawled on black flecked sand. From far away, it had looked like a giant slug, bloated on the shore, but now, nearing it, Ruth can see it is a mammal. A warm-blooded, air-breathing mammal with a belly button, just like her. The size is overwhelming. Too much for her exhausted brain to take in her eyes, too. For a second, she wonders if she might be hallucinating, but no. There is the smell. She can almost taste it. She has come so far to be here, to see this animal. It is a moment she has envisaged ever since she was a little girl. But it was never like this. Never in these circumstances. It is so big that as she gets closer, her muscles aching, her breathing ragged, she realises her eyes are tracking back and forth. Past the elegant fin splayed among the trailing seaweed, from muzzle to flukes and back again, just to take in the whole animal. As big as two double-decker buses. How many times has she read that? Hi, Kate. Welcome to the podcast. I'm really happy to have you here with me today to talk about your debut novel, The Stranding. Thanks so much for having me, Clary. It's great to be here. On... Oh, yeah, I'm going to make lots of confessions on confessions <laughs> of the list. Good, that's what we want. So can you start us off by explaining what the plot of your novel, The Stranding, is about? Yes. So the headline is that it's about a woman who survives the end of the world by hiding inside a whale. It's 
slightly more complex than that in that it's two timelines that interweave um, following the journey of Ruth, both before the apocalypse in London and after the apocalypse in New Zealand. And the whale is uh, something that she uses to avoid this blast. And she survives with another person, Nick, who is from New Zealand. So they are the man and woman who survived the end of the world. Yeah, and that image of someone surviving in the belly of a whale is just incredible and it's so unique. So how on earth did that idea come to you? Well, I suppose it came because I wasn't looking for it. <laughs> like so many of these things. I was doing a like writing challenge alongside my job in events. Um, at a point where I wasn't really acting that much. I was doing a bit of writing, like film and scripts, and I wanted to develop that, but I wasn't sure which way it was going to go. So I was doing some challenges to keep my writing going alongside earning money. And one of the challenges of this 28 plays later, to write a play a day for 28 days in February, the challenge, the prompt was Blue Whale. And I did a bit of Googling and saw where you could possibly see a blue whale. And I just had this image of um, a family living inside the bones of a, a beach whale. And I just wrote this family basically bickering <laughs> um, outside their tent, talking about how it happened, how they came to be living inside that whale. And that scene is still in the book, but it expanded in both directions from that. Of, wow. Yeah, so it's sort of like the origin story of the idea. I guess that's what I ended up writing. Um, and in general, I think that's something that helps me is to find an idea and then explore how that came about and the story therefore isn't linear necessarily but it mm. come it, it spreads out its tentacles from either side so did you find that you just kept returning to that idea in your mind when you were doing other things did it kind of stay with you yeah I, I sort of thought it was a good idea and I sort of liked the characters it was a short play as in like a five minute play you know um and I, sh and I got some friends to read it through. We read through a few of our short plays and I just felt like there was something there with it. And then essentially I sat down to write the first 10,000 words because I decided I wanted to apply to a master's, a creative writing master's. I think I was a bit lost really. I wasn't, didn't really want to act anymore. I was making short films, like directing, trying out directing and writing and trying to work out if I could try and forge a career in TV or film, like on the other side of the camera. Hmm. Um, but I was finding it really difficult to break into and there was like a real creative pleasure in writing. So I decided I wanted to do an MA to sort of work out where I was gonna try and make a career. Um, <laughs> and yeah so I applied to UEA but because I didn't do a degree because I did a drama um, diploma I um, 
had to write 10,000 words or whatever because without the degree to do it and so I wrote 10,000 words of the stranding and 10,000 words of something else and I showed them both to my mum and my mum was like well I like them both but this is the more interesting idea and when I had the interview at UEA um, they were like keep writing this and so I did. Great I want to touch briefly again on this idea of this whale Mm-hmm. Because it's obviously such a, it's a surreal image and it work, yeah, it works so well in the novel because you completely buy into it. There's no, obviously there's an element of suspension of disbelief, but there's never a point where as a reader, I was thinking, well, this just couldn't happen because you've made it so convincing in the novel. And your characters even question it at one point and say, you know, did we imagine it? Did it definitely happen? Mm-hmm. So how did you make it so convincing? How did you kind of go about constructing this very odd situation and yet make it feel so plausible? I think part of it is to do with perspective. So um, talking about this like sensory experience for the two characters whose, perspe- whose perspectives it's from and just thinking about what feels real to any of us. <laughs> I mean, we're all living in a simulation anyway. So, you know, but I mean, I suppose I'm going from that idea, like what is real really? And for me, it's what we experience by our senses. At least that's what we think it is. And so if I get inside the sort of experience of the characters and explain it that way in a sort Mm. of quite visceral, you know, almost gross way at times, then does that, um maybe that's part of why it seems real because you can imagine the how disgusting it would be to be inside mm. a whale's mouth if I explain it like that and I think it's the juxtaposition of that leap of imagination alongside the really ordinary mm. stuff that we recognize about London which essentially is the same thing coming from Ruth's perspective in a sort of quite sensual way it's still just her perspective of the world yeah that that juxtaposition between the the everyday I mean I'm thinking particularly of a of a scene where Ruth's listening to a conversation in a cafe where someone's deciding what to order and they want to order something gluten-free and then it ends up having fruit in it and they can't have it and just those kind of everyday snippets of life yeah against this um this end of the world scenario does like you say help to make it more real because you're observing things that are very familiar to us and then taking us somewhere that's really unfamiliar and yet we can plant ourselves in this end of the world scenario have you always been interested in that kind of like post-apocalyptic fiction was that something that you've been drawn to before or was this totally kind of out of the blue for you to write this Um, Well, I'm quite scared of post-apocalyptic fiction and certainly my awareness of sort of like the canon um, of that genre was minimal. However, I am a bit of a catastrophizer, or rather I like personally to think of the worst case scenarios that I can draw myself back. (laughs) Like it's like an anxiety technique to sort of like how bad could it be because then I then I feel quite grateful for the situation as it is um and so I you know that is something that definitely 
uh, writers that write about apocalypse are playing with anyway, using it as a, a way to talk about that. So I suppose that is sort of an innate thing in me, but I hadn't really read a huge amount of it. Um, I'd avoided the road because I'd heard that it's about an apocalypse and that it scared me, the idea of it. Um, I mentioned to a friend when I was like about halfway through writing the manuscript, I, I, you know, the first draft, I mentioned to a friend about it and he said, oh, so it's like on the beach. And I was like, what? <laughs> <laughs> and he was like, Neville Shoots novel. And I wasn't aware of it. Um, so what I did is during the writing of it, I made a list of books that I hadn't read and I read them before it went on submission, some of them, and then um, further into the editing process. So, it, yeah, so I didn't use them as like reference points, but it was really interesting to read how my version of an apocalypse sort of fit into mm -hmm. other books. Um, yeah, I read Oryx and Crake and On the Road and The Beach, but when, not The Beach, On the Beach, but when I was, um, younger I loved loved Children of the Dust like to a point of obsession you know read it I can't remember how many times because it scared me so much and reading it somehow felt um it it made me feel better <laughs> for some reason it was it you know because of the survival element of it and I suppose mm. that that has fed into The Stranding because it isn't really about the destruction of the apocalypse. It's about navigating the worst case scenario. Mm. Um, and I also love Zeb Zachariah, which I hadn't watched the film. I only watched the film of really recently, but I did read it when I was a child. Again, the film, the idea of it scares, <laughs> scares me, but watching it, I really enjoyed it because it's that same thing. It's sort of like, how does how does human nature respond to this how would it respond to a new environment um is what I'm interested in mm. uh quite you know not not only but uh, that's one of the things that I'm interested in in a particular lens let's talk a little bit about your kind of I'm going to call it like the everyday strand where we see Ruth in London mm -hmm. living out her life um Obviously, the story idea started as this family uh, living in the bones of a whale. But where did you get to the when did you get to the point where you decided to have this other strand of story going alongside it, which which is kind of uh, a more familiar story to us? When did that uh, come into being? Was that later on down the line or did you always have an idea in your mind that you wanted these two stories to run alongside each other? I, I, I suppose I didn't have... I wasn't, I didn't know that I wanted them to run alongside each other, but the, the process was, I had that idea of them on the beach talking about the way life used to be. And so even in that initial idea, there was this like looking back to the world as it was, which is the world that we are in now. And so the first scene I wrote other than that was a scene that is the first scene in London in Ruth's life. Cause I just was like, okay, so how did she get from point A? Mm. <laughs> how did she get from being a woman that was living an ordinary life in London to 
hiding inside a whale. I mean, that's essentially what the story is. <laughs> and so I started, well, what would be a very ordinary thing to do to go on a date in London at Gordon's Wine Bar is essentially <laughs> the where I started. And then I started exploring things. So yeah, the, the, the story built from that. But as I wrote that, I started to work out what her life was with Nick as well, mm. what the life post-apocalyptically was. Um, and so it did sort of naturally happen in tandem. It's that um, bit of a joy of the writing your first novel because it's all just play and it's all, <laughs> there's no deadlines. There's no thinking that anyone's ever going to see it. <laughs> so you're just playing really. Can you talk to us then a little bit about your characterization of Rita? Because what I really liked about her is that, so we're seeing her obviously in, in at the end of the world stage, it's a very extreme situation, but in her kind of everyday life, she's quite a flawed character. She makes some sort of bad decisions, mistakes. She's almost more herself, more settled in when the world's ended. So can you talk a little bit about how she came to life when you were writing? I suppose that I wanted her to make quite a lot of bad decisions, but I didn't want to, um, well, no, not just bad decisions. She doesn't make just bad decisions. So it was a bit of it. I wanted to write a um, every woman. So I sort of wanted to explore these like rites of passage is the wrong word, but like maybe things that happen in many women's lives, I suppose, mm. from different perspectives. And I didn't want to make elements of her personality innate because I'm not so sure that we are that we have innate um qualities I think that our environment dictates a lot of it our you know our experiences and the choices that we have to make often in a split second um that that builds our personality so I suppose I wanted to talk about the redemption the, the potential for redemption as well of well, it all depends on your point of view because the things she does that are bad in the London strand, are they really that bad in in perspective mm -hmm. of what else is going on in the world? Like, is it so bad to have an affair with someone that's married? I'm not entirely sure. Like, obviously for the people that affects, it's um, awful. But so yeah, I was interested in the sort of morality mm. of a char of characters, and apart from that, I just also wanted to write someone that isn't good, isn't mm -hmm. a nice character. Um, I think there are a lot out there. I think there's a lot of um, interesting and complex characters in books, but I suppose that there were some things that I wanted to explore that I hadn't seen that much of. One of them being like her, even like the stuff about her body <laughs> that is touched on in books. And, um, you know, Marion Keys does a great job, obviously, of talking about different bodies and what it's like to live in different bodies. But um, I think I, was yeah I mean I, when I read the audiobook I was like wow quite a lot of stuff about going to the toilet in this Kate um 
which I hadn't realized when I was writing it but I suppose part of me wanted to talk about that stuff because it just doesn't seem to be that um and, of, and also when toilets are removed from our world they become mm. it becomes a bit more of a an issue um but it's still an issue in our everyday lives and if you're talking about everyday lives then I suppose you want to include some of that sometimes but I'm not like we're gonna write about toilets in every book <laughs> <laughs> that's that's book two which we'll talk about later yeah yeah <laughs> The Stranding's been out now for almost a year. It's now out in paperback. So I was wondering whether you could share with us things that you've learned along the way, things that you've learned about yourself, about the process itself. And if you could go back in time and speak to yourself, just as your first publication day approached, what would you say? I mean, enjoy it as much as possible and celebrate it for yourself. So celebrate your wins, every win, like, because sometimes it, it feels, you have to be your own biggest champion, I suppose. And recognizing all of these little steps along the way is actually what makes the bigger picture. I suppose um, being released when I did, which was June, yeah, 2021, the, when the hardback came out, I, it was difficult because there weren't the events. It was also like a sort of weird time where it was supposed to, everything was supposed to be opening up, but then they changed their mind and mm. it was still the rule of six. And so it was like, is there, are we gonna have a book launch? There might be a possibility for events. It didn't, but it was just a bit unsure. And I really threw myself at doing the like online events that were available. And looking back, it was great, <laughs> but at the time it just felt a bit like it, I wasn't able to do the things that I'd hoped to do. Mm. Um, but there were some real benefits to doing it from home with a small child, you know, and um, I met some really great people that possibly I wouldn't have met if I hadn't done those things online. Um, and the, the support of the, um, I set up a, a debut group on, Twitter inspired by in 2020 uh, Polly Crosby uh, set one up um, for the of the debuts that are coming out in 2020 and so I followed suit and did it in 2021 and then I know that you've got one mm -hmm. for 2022 and I would recommend even though hopefully everything will stay open that debut authors that are coming out in 2023 do the same thing because mm. it connects you to people around the country whose books are coming out at different times that will receive different levels of success and you'll see as well that success doesn't necessarily look like what you were expecting that mm. um people find different readerships and I know that I'm still really early in that journey um and it's sort of trying to remember that I think is that it's a really long road or mm. it is if it's something that you want to do ongoing, if you've discovered that you really love writing, it's gonna be a long road of disappointments and wins. So celebrate every win and recognize that the disappointments happen to everybody, but just in different ways. Mm. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. 
Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Yeah, I think... Like you said, the community is really helpful for debuts. I know the 2023 debuts have already started the group. So hopefully they'll have the same similar experience. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Obviously, publishing is complicated and quite a confusing industry to step into when you're a debut. Is there anything about it that you kind of know now that you didn't know then that would have been helpful for you to, to have known back then? Being your own um, champion is really important. So both celebrating your wins, but also knowing that your publishers have got lots of books. Like I always try and keep this in my mind that you're important to your editor, you're important to your publishing team, but they've got lots of books that are important to them and you only have your book. So try and remember that perspective. And then also try and make it about relationships, I think is the nicest way to go about it. So it's about forming relationships with other authors because you help to promote each other's work. It's about um, forming relationships with booksellers because they essentially, they, they hand sell your work. So not only are, you know, you can make friends with these people. It will be a long-term relationship and it's really fulfilling. Um, And of course, readers and bloggers, like bloggers and readers are also there to make relationships with. Mm. And I think if you view it like that, rather than just about getting this product out there, it becomes much more fulfilling. But at the same time, you are getting your product, (laughs) the book, Mm. And yourself, really, the brand of you a bit out there. And it becomes less corporate and more enjoyable um, 
but is still fulfilling the same purpose mm. um because you just you can't we can't all be Richard Osmond and he also <laughs> Richard Osmond also had a, a particular public profile that allowed his book to go there. We have to recognise that as well. So, yeah, it's a tandem thing, but something that you can get involved with. And the more you do it, the more that you collaborate with your publishers on doing that, the more that they will sort of help you, I think. Mm. Um, yeah, so help them to help you by daring to put yourself out there a bit, I think. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about some of your highlights now, because I know you've had some amazing successes and we've obviously got to talk about the Costa nomination. So what have been your highlights since publication? I've really enjoyed doing events. Um, I've had some, I was lucky enough to have a few small events, um, even though it was like a weird time, mm. um, particularly uh, meeting Katie at Storytellers Inc. Um, I went up and did the book club there and that was really fun. First of all, it was the first time I'd traveled across the country for so long, <laughs> um, but also just to meet Katie because she'd been so supportive of the debuts and is just in general uh, of authors um, on, Twitter and so to meet her in person was really lovely um and then book clubs of friends as well that has been really lovely um I did a lovely event at Topping and e uh, Toppings in Ely um that was my first event so probably that's why it sticks so mm. much in my head and then you know what it's been talking to other authors <laughs> so because it feels like finding a community and particularly since doing the podcast I'm doing podcasts like this one. Um, it's remembering that we're all going through similar stuff um, because sometimes it can feel very isolating. Mm. And so there's that. But then the other part of it is I love editing. <laughs> <laughs> um, I When I was acting, I always loved rehearsal more than performance. And editing has that similar vibe where you're sort of trying things out and moving things around and then something clicks and you make a connection and it's like, oh, yes, this is <laughs> this is this is the good stuff. Um, yeah, that's a, a high that is hard to um, find elsewhere. Yeah, so that I think editing events and authors would be my and also reading authors work uh reading authors work becoming more aware of books that I wouldn't have been previously mm -hmm. because the way that books are presented you know you have got those booksellers that do that's why I think people should talk to booksellers in all bookshops because that's how you find unusual stuff tell them what you like and see what they mm. give you that's like it um but if you are someone that goes into bookshop and chooses one off the table, then you, which I had done quite a lot of in London, perhaps because I was busy or whatever. And yeah, so this has been a really great way to discover books outside of what I think I might like. So then tell us about your podcast, Novel Experience, and you've just recently launched that. So how did you, um, how did you come up with the idea and what have you learned from speaking to other writers? So my publicist, uh, when we met for lunch, like back in, I think it was November last year, she said, I think you should do a podcast. And I was like, 
oh and I was like oh no that sounds like a lot of work <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, and then um you did yours so what, was it in January I think you launched it yeah it started it? in January yeah and I was and I I said to you well I've had this on my list for quite some time and <laughs> uh, really well done you for getting yourself together and then it was really strange I finished um the edit of my second book the the first structural edit and I was like okay now's the moment to do it like I have an idea <laughs> I just thought it was about rather than it just yeah I was about um the experience of being a novelist I guess which is a similar thing to what you're doing it's exploring how people write and why they write what they write and I realized that I didn't have to be you know Elizabeth Day has that brilliant structure of how to fail and the three questions that she asks and I was sort of trying to find that before I launched it but then I realized that actually like Adam Buxton's podcast and your podcast the ones that I really quite enjoy um and even like what uh what the what page pod, podcast mm -hmm. where people are talking just like co a conversation and it goes all over the place I really yeah. enjoy like, listening to those ones so um yeah that's what I do I talk <laughs> to authors with an opening question about when they if they've always written and then go from there and see what see where we go so it is a bit can be a bit rambling I guess <laughs> but in the nicest possible way full of covering different subject matters and you just mentioned there about writing your your latest book how has your the fact that you've already got a book out there changed your writing process and your writing routine because obviously now you're writing to a deadline so I'm guessing that changes things and makes it a bit more pressured yeah it I mean as you know because you'll be doing that at the moment writing your second book it's really hard to even when your book hasn't come out to start writing it which was the aim was to try and have a first draft by the time the hardback was published. I didn't quite manage it. I'd like overshot by a couple of months, um, but the end came quite quickly. Um, it was really hard to think of the fact that it would be read by people. Um, mm. Really hard to turn off that, like watching myself and thinking, judging it at every corner and I found eventually, after a lot of trying, that it is about the characters for me. So mm. I have to sort of write around the characters, I think, for a while. And then I can, once I know who they are, I can charge forward with a story. But um, yeah, that was what I found with this one. So, but I like writing characters anyway. That's my main interest is character-based stuff. So obviously you've got a lot of connections now with other writers and you've been writing now with yourself for a long time. So can you share with us your top three tips for writers that are embarking on their first novel or maybe written for a long time? What would be your top bit of advice, top three bits of advice? Well, a lot of this comes from, um, from talking to people on novel experience. And one of the things that I think is uh, really interesting is that there is no formula. <laughs> so um, everybody does it differently and that 
the main barriers are psychological ones. Um, certainly for getting a draft out. Um, so employ whatever tricks you can. <laughs> Um, so some people write on their phones, some people write on notepads. So it's trying out what works for you um, and then sticking to that, I think, because it's not you can't edit something that doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. So whether it's having a time um, limit that suits you or whether it's having a word count that suits you or whether it's um writing every weekend or writing every morning you can't tell someone the best way to do it but you can mm. say find one of those things or try one of those things and see what works I mean I'm still sort of of the let's try Pomodoro technique this week or let's try writing in the morning this week or let's try writing at night this week mm. and I think that's okay too but it's making sure you're doing the writing <laughs> Um, and sometimes, yeah, those. So that that would be one thing is to mm. think that there aren't hard and fast rules about how you write, how one writes. So experiment, maybe, and find what works for you. I think one of the things that's been really good for me is starting gardening. Mm -hmm. I think having a hobby or something that you can get slightly obsessed with that takes up quite a bit of your time is really helpful. <laughs> uh, and that, and, and not Twitter. Um, so <laughs> Twitter, Twitter can be something you can get obsessed with and take up a lot of your time. But what I'm talking about is a project that mm. is different from writing for two reasons. One, it can um, stimulate your creativity. You know, best ideas often come when washing up or you know traveling for lots of people say this when they're doing something that their brain is engaged but not um on the activity of writing mm. so it provides that time for creativity but also if it's something that um slightly obsesses you it might draw your obsession away from <laughs> um the pursuit of your book getting out there I suppose mm. um because it does feel a bit all-consuming it's understandable there's a lot of um emotions tied up with your first book going out into the world but you've got to try and find some way to negate <laughs> that a mm. bit you need to offset it a bit with um another obsession would be my I mean maybe <laughs> you're someone that's really chill and you don't need it meditation would probably be a good one too but I found knitting so I wouldn't so I wouldn't look at my phone, <laughs> really helpful. Yeah, good, good idea. <laughs> yeah, so those are the two things. But I think if you would like to go through a cookbook, you know, <laughs> anything like that would work. And one more bit of advice? Oh yeah, one more bit. Oh, well, read lots. I mean, that's not a, that's not a new uh, thing, <laughs> but my editor actually says that when I'm uh, writing, I should read outside of the genre of what I'm writing. Mm -hmm. So I'm, my second book is a not entire, not chronological um, family saga. So it's a family, it's about a story about a family. Saga might be the wrong word, but essentially it is because it covers a long period of time. So 
essentially I've banned myself or I did ban myself <laughs> from reading those while I was editing. And it just meant that um, the reading is still informative, but not Doesn't by... clash, yeah. Yeah, and, it's, and that is a really helpful mm. thing to do. Yeah, and then you can really enjoy a family saga when you stop oh, writing your family saga or true. your thr- thriller when you stop writing your thriller, yeah. Going back now to The Stranding and... Mm-hmm. We've talked about how unique this book is, but I was wondering if you can think of any comparisons, books that you think maybe share similar space or similar themes, things that you think readers, if they enjoy those books, they would enjoy The Stranding as well. I think this is a bit of an odd comparison. I don't know if I've made it before, but um, I think in the sort of episodic long period of time quality, you could say there might be some similarities to One Day, um, which it isn't, you know, the same formula, but like One Day or The Time Traveller's Wife that have at the core sort of a romance that's trying to work its way out through episodic um, mm-hmm. elements and it not being completely chronological both strands of the stranding are chronological but what I mean is they it's not a straight one straight timeline well there's quite a few books about women surviving the end of the world that came out recently um, that have similarities but I suppose another influence on me that isn't about the same thing um, but Station Eleven which you know one um it's such a masterpiece, I think. And so, you know, holds it saying, oh, it's quite similar to my book. <laughs> it feels a bit, um, bit much. But having watched it, because I'm currently um, working with Athel Hirsch on the screenplay adaptation. It's really early stages. Who knows mm-hmm. if it will ever be seen on screen. But we both watched um, the new series of Station Eleven for like a comparison, really, of how a book can translate mm-hmm. to the TV. And I was reminded of certain things that ha- have similarities in it. It's a long time since I read Station Eleven. Um, but there is that thing about what remains in humanity or what um, are the like resilient, what, what resilience is in yeah. humans. So, and also a reflection on how good the world is currently. Is it this, is it a utopia or is it maybe not? Uh, although you're nervous about comparing it, I do think it's a good comparison. Oh, that's very kind. Very <laughs> <thank> you. <laughs> and you've touched on it briefly already, but are you able to tell us a little bit about the, uh, the plot of your new novel that will be out next year? I don't know if I can like surmise the plot, but I can say that this family will be out in June 2023. It is about a family that isn't necessarily a nuclear family. That is, uh, it takes place over the course of 24 hours in a garden in Suffolk, which is where I'm from and where I now live again. Um, But also is across 40 years in London, Suffolk, New York, LA all of which are places that I've lived so um yeah so it has multi perspectives and multi locations 
and multi-times, but tells, I hope, a character portrait of these nine people in a family. Sounds great. And I love a family saga, so I'm really looking forward to it. Yay. Thank you so much, Kate, for joining me on the podcast today. Thank you, Chloe. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. That was Kate Sawyer talking about her post-apocalyptic debut, The Stranding, which is out now in paperback. Before I go, let me just tell you about two events I've got coming up where I'm hosting this podcast, Confessions of a Debut Novelist, live. First, I'm going to be talking to three authors at the Being a Writer Festival, hosted by the Literary Consultancy on June the 28th. Then on July the 22nd, I'm going to be talking to Louise Morrish about her historical novel at Jericho Writers Summer Festival. Both of these events are virtual, so you can join anywhere in the world and even ask questions. And if you're interested in hearing me talk in person about my novel, The Sea Women, I'll be at the Margate Bookie on Thursday the 2nd of June. Tickets for all these events are available to buy and I'll put all the details in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Or if you've subscribed already, it would be great if you could leave me a review. See you next time. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. quince.com slash style.